Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. How I arrived at Nike as a maybe more of a craftsman, a brand, say, like Apple or Nike spends a lot of time creating one of the reasons you see them everywhere and, and why people wear them is do you have worked with the likes of Kobe? You've collaborated with LeBron. You've created campaigns for the Brazil national football team. You were involved in the famous period where Colin Kaepernick helped to change the world with his involvement with Nike. I felt that the art within brand building, the practice of creating emotional value in your products and brand, in some ways is being squeezed out of the process. So to be an innovation front runner, part of that is making sure that so how do you decide whether a campaign is successful or not? I've always used a really simple framework, and I call it... You're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast, the number one business podcast in the U.S., where we talk about entrepreneurship, money, and how to improve your life and achieve success. I'm your host, Erica Kohlberg. I'm a lawyer and personal finance expert with over 20 million followers on social media. Today, I'm interviewing Greg Hoffman, former Nike chief marketing officer. He teaches us how to build a brand with purpose, how to measure success, and how he went from being an intern to the CMO at Nike. He also gives us his tips on how to create more emotional value around a brand, how to be a good leader, and the advice he would tell his younger self. If you're eager to learn how Greg became one of the most influential leaders in marketing, then this is the episode for you. I'm Erica Kohlberg, this is Erica Taught Me, and today we're here with Greg Hoffman. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between 6 to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. 
And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. When you first joined Nike, there wasn't really this concept of social media. How do you think social media has changed the game for Nike? Well, if anything, it brings you closer to your audience. And it's less, you move from, and I had been at the brand for a long time, almost three decades, right? And the early ways to communicate with your audience was television, billboard, and print. And then along comes first, you have YouTube in 2005, 2006, and you have Facebook and Instagram. And if anything, I think the the great thing about social media that's affected brands, not just Nike, but everyone, is it's a two-way conversation. It's not a company broadcasting their message at the customer. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it's an equal partnership. And maybe you don't always want to hear certain messages, but that kind of raw and real honesty, right, I think is a benefit uh, to, because I really believe at the end of the day, you create with the community you serve. And if you have a lot of people passionate about the products and services that you create as a brand, where do they get to show their affinity and passion for that? And I think social media is one of those areas. It's also a place where if they feel they're not being served in in a way that serves their aspirations and dreams, they can share that. And at the end of the day, I like brands that feel like they're a living, breathing person, right? Um, That the personality of that brand comes through channels like social media versus um, it feels like maybe there's not a human being on the other side, Right, So that's why I fully embrace the, the reality that we're in today in terms of an intimate way and a fast way um, to communicate what you stand for and, and what it is that you're selling. And when I say selling, I'm not talking about transactions. I'm talking about what you sell is your purpose and your promise. What's your promise to those that you're, to the audience you're serving? And how do you earn that every single day? Because at the end of the day, brand resonance and brand affinity is, is earned, not given. Mm-hmm. You don't become a successful brand uh, one day, then decide you're good. There's no plays off, right? So you have to show up each morning and, and decide what are you going to do to improve the lives of, of, of those you serve on that. And guess what? Revenue and business growth is an outcome when you have, I think, a higher aspirational view of your role in the world as a company. Do you think for Nike, the way you would describe it today would be the same way you would describe the brand in 1992 when you showed up as an intern for Nike? And are brands supposed to evolve over time? Or do you think brands are supposed to have these consistent pillars that they stand by and they should stay the same a decade, two decades, three decades into the company? Yeah, well, I think your your original pursuit and purpose in terms of why you exist, and of course, Nike was exists to serve athletes. That's why it came came to be, right? Through innovation, innovative products, 
and inspiration, uh, inspirational stories. And that part hasn't changed. Um, and when we say athletes, if you have a body, you're an athlete. That was the quote by the co-founder, right? So that meant any body type, skill level, age, it didn't matter, right? So you're serving this incredible marketplace of athletes around the world. So that hasn't changed. And the fundamental values um, that uh, it was founded on have not changed as well, right? And so what has is the way you're able to, one, communicate those values, right? But two, I think more importantly, involve people more. Again, your customers and your audience build that future together. I always say, you know, it's like, I like brands that essentially create movements. They paint a picture of a vivid, like immersive picture of a audacious future. And they almost use their products to invite you into that. That's the spirit of just do it, Mm -hmm. right? Is that it's not just my just do it. It's not the company's just do it. It's all of ours. We're all collectively part of this pursuit of human potential. It just happens to be in the world of athleticism. Another brand, it might be this idea of, I, I think Apple um, believes that everybody is, has creative capacity and that their products um, are invitations to unleash that. So I'm, I'm always... Like this, uh, both establishments, brands, and startups that I work with, uh, I spend a lot of time focused on that. What's the higher calling that I would get to be a part of if I purchased that product or um, I was using that service that may, in the beginning, have a particular sharp benefit or it's satisfying something that I need, but I'm going to go into a relationship with you me, the consumer, you, the brand, because clearly there's something more there. Because if there's not, quite frankly, you're just going to compete based on price, right? And there's a lot of stiff competition there. So that's what I mean by, um, yes, brands have an obligation to look at their, what I call their brand house. And I can talk about that a little bit, but essentially your brand house is, and I think you should be able to get this on one sheet of paper, but it's your brand purpose. You know, why do you exist? Your brand mission and vision. Where are you going and how are you going to get there? Who are you serving and what are you serving them with? And then your brand values, right? What are the characteristics and traits that compose who you are, right? We're, we're all a mosaic mm-hmm. of characteristics and, and values. And so it's not just one, but you have to articulate what those are. If you can get that on one sheet of paper, and I I believe this even for just leaders like me or you or anyone, but anyone in your brand, whether it's two people or 2,000, should have that sheet of paper and that brand house, because I call it a house because it's the building blocks and it's the foundation of who you want to be. And I believe you should revisit it every single year. And you, you have the obligation and the right to refine it, too. So that's, that's that. And there's always going to be an emphasis on authenticity. Um, because, as I like to say, authenticity is your currency as a brand and as a leader. Um, and it's important to embody that. So it's hard to be authentic if your house isn't in order. So build your brand house. 
Um, and oftentimes with startups, it can be hard, right? Because they're trying to perfect that product or that service. They're trying to get it to market as fast as they can. They haven't had a lot of time to think of the bigger brand calling or purpose. But I really try to work with folks just to kind of distill down um, through a series of questions what that house can look like. And it will serve them better down the road if you do that work up front. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen And it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this. For my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura, and I'll also leave the link in the show notes. What kind of questions are you asking these founders to really try to get to what the purpose is? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, and one of the questions I ask is, what's the invitation? And someone might say, well, what are you talking about? We, we make, just making it up, we make automobiles. But the invitation, there would be an invite. So if you're, a, you're a, a car manufacturer or you're coming up with your new electric car brand, clearly you want to take people on an adventure, yeah. right? You want to connect people to what they love, to destinations. Um, and so the car in some ways is a vessel to go on that journey. So asking people, what is the invitation? What's that vision of tomorrow? Um, I believe that brands that are able to be brands of progress, meaning I want to make sure that I can help you progress to become the best version of yourself. I know that gets used a lot, right? But it's true. So all of a sudden, I'm thinking about um, you in a different way. I'm not just thinking about you in the moment, like I have to sell Erica something, right? Instead, I'm thinking about, well, yes, I have products that I'm passionate about, and I, I, my hope is that um, they satisfy the needs you're looking for, but I want to make sure I'm looking at you know, your entire journey, right, over time. And I want to be on that journey helping you progress versus, hi, here's a product I'm, I, I have and you never see me again or worse, I show up again and we have to introduce ourselves to each other, right? Yeah. So that's that idea of being a member versus just a consumer, because if I'm a member, well, then, then I've joined your club. Like I'm a member of Apple, Right? I've, 
I'm logged in. They are deeply uh, <laughs> entrenched in my pursuit to become just, you know, a more creative individual, a better leader, a better storyteller. But there's other brands that, quite frankly, it's just, it's just price. And that's what I mean. The difference is, if I can continue to ramble here, is a brand, say, like Apple or Nike, spends a lot of time creating emotional value, right, through their storytelling, through their brand identity, right, the brand elements, the visual elements of mm-hmm. their brand, as well as the experiences they create, where they put their product, how it's presented, um, who's wearing the product in their communication. All of those things come together to build a world, right, world building. And you start to look at that. Um, Ralph Lauren used to say that um, he didn't design products, he designed dreams, that he was essentially creating movie posters or movie sets, right? You're wa- imagine you're walking into a movie versus it's just a store, right? So not just a product, but a dream. That's pretty powerful when the founder of a company, that obsessed with creating an aspirational vision of a dream, and he's inviting you to be a part of it. So that's what I mean by um, committing to creating emotional value because oftentimes, kind of like the shoes I'm wearing, the Air, I'll use this as an example if I can, um, the Air Force One sneaker was designed 40 years ago. It was my first sneaker. And yet today, 40 years later, it's the highest selling sneaker by volume in the U.S. But the innovation and the benefit is no different than 40 years ago, right? So the rational value is the same. But the emotional value that's been built which there's infinite opportunity of all those stories that have been created year after year after year, right? And some of it is you subconsciously feel, right? You can't identify it. But clearly, one of the reasons you see them everywhere and and why people wear them is they're responding to how they feel beyond just walking around in them right? They feel empowered. They feel inspired. They may feel that they have status. And all that comes from this idea of, of, and I say this a lot, um, emotional value is constantly asking the question, how do you want people to feel about your brand? That's one. But more importantly, how do you want people to feel about themselves and their ability to achieve their aspirations? Like iconic brands understand that. Again, the Ralph Lauren example, he's asking the question throughout the process of building products and experiences, how do I want people to feel about themselves when they interact with the brand? I want them to feel confident. So that's, that to me is, the, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, Emotion by Design, is, is I felt that the art within brand building and the practice of creating emotional value in your products and brand, in some ways is being squeezed out of the process because of the speed at which we're living within this digital world, right? And again, I, I, you know, I, I see all the work that you are doing and there's so much emotion in the way that you um, deliver expertise and that's your brand. And I think people respond to that and that's how brands are more than just transactions, right? You have relationships mm-hmm. with them, even if it's an individual 
Sometimes entire cities can be a brand, right? Yeah, so that, that's just a little, little about the power of infusing and surrounding everything you do with emotion. But it comes back to you have to continue to ask the question, how do you want people to feel? Yeah. Right? How do you measure the success of something so intangible? I mean, you can't really, when you run a Nike campaign across all of these different platforms, it's hard to be able to quantify, oh, this emotionally impacted people. And it's not so much at, at the stage Nike is at, you're also not going to see a direct increase in, you're not going to see people clicking and buying right away, maybe. Or, That's true. Right? Yeah. It's not, at this point, you're going for brand awareness and this emotion, but it's hard to measure that. So how do you decide whether a campaign is successful or not? Yeah, well, let's say it's a, it's a smaller, mid-sized company or even a larger company. And I've always used a, a really simple framework, right? And I call it overground, on the ground, and underground marketing. And your on the ground marketing is your, your digital marketing, like product marketing, performance marketing, your digital commerce work that you're doing every day in real time, with incredible velocity. And honestly, it probably makes up the majority of the work that you do and the use of your demand creation dollars, right? The, the, the budgets that you use to market your brand. But once or twice a year, you must pull up from that product marketing and do the overground brand marketing and remind people what you stand for. Again, um, what they can be a part of, the things that you're doing in the world that improve people's lives. A lot of that is not going to come through your day-to-day real-time marketing, right? And so your point is, how do you measure that? Well, first is you're being clear that you're not doing that 24-7, right? But you are looking out at a year and deciding we're going to have a theme for the year. We're going to have a call to action. We're going to have our version of Just Do It. And we're going to bring that to life periodically to ensure that we're able to lift all the products and services and things we do up, right? And um, there are things you can do in terms of surveys and metrics that define um, where you sit as a favorite brand or a cool brand in the world. And some of that is done through just survey-based things. Some of it is based on uh, sell-through uh, and share of voice and mm-hmm. those different things. But you are able to measure your place as a favorite brand or cool brand amongst teens in the cities that are, you could say, most influential in culture around the world. That could be New York or Tokyo or Shanghai, London, on that. With that said, though, and here's... Here's where we're at, right? Because the problem maybe could be that if you can't prove the productivity before you even start the process, chances are then in a lot of situations, you're not going to make those investments. You're not going to spend that time. And you're not going to take, in my opinion, your audience someplace new, okay? And I, I use the, I always said this to my teams, right? How can we expect to take our customers someplace new if we're not willing to go there first ourselves. It's kind of impossible, right? So to to be an innovation front runner, part of that is making sure that periodically, um, although the majority maybe of your business might be based on signals from the marketplace or your customers, right? There are going to be times where you have a space 
where you can dream big and put some things out there that your audience could never dream of. And I think that's what those you know, Tesla, Apple, Nike have done over the years on that. So Erica, it's a balance. Um, that's why I say brand building is an art and a science. And all I'm saying is let's make sure that the art does it sque- gets squeezed out of the process. Yeah. How do you think Nike decides which athletes are going to be a great fit for the brand? What are they looking for? Well, I think first and foremost, you're starting with who aligns with your brand values, just as if you were picked, you're, you're, you're thinking about which employees you want to recruit in your brand. I think the same goes for which athletes or in, in some brands cases, which, which influencers, you know, I have this uh, mantra I live by, you know, don't chase cool because most likely you're not going to catch it. And what I mean by that is start from a place of authenticity when you're looking to partner with someone, a brand ambassador, an athlete, um, when you're looking to use a new platform, is it right for you or are you just jumping on the bandwagon? So don't, don't chase cool means um, looking out at the landscape and seeing in the case of athletes, do extraordinary things, but at the same time, their brand values, how they lead, how they show up mirrors your own. And I think that's something that I, th- I think brands of all levels um, need to lean into that, right? And I think that over the long term, holding on to your, your authenticity standards, if you will, um, will pay dividends, even if there's some, some moments where you miss out in the short term, right? Um, because maybe there was a bright, shiny object that was, was blinking, right? But you really got to assess um, if that's right for you. And this is, this is you know, what I used to do. The audience that I'm trying to reach or serve, can they clearly make the connection between who we are and what maybe who we're partnering with, or is it unclear, right? Or have we brought that relationship to life in a way um, that is both inspiring and meaningful and authentic so that it's just, there's no question with that. And so when you look at, you know, across brands today, the, the hope is that more often than not, brands are going through and using those filters versus jumping into situations where um, it's unclear, right? We might get to this later, but it really is important when you get into uh, brand purpose and using your platform and position to um, try to improve the world that we live within, you know? And when you stand up as a brand to have something to say about a pressing issue in the world, it's important for your audience to be able to, to connect, you know, what you sell with what the world needs at that given moment. Like, can they understand why you would be getting involved uh, around that particular cause? Or is it confusing, right? Because if it's, if it's maybe confusing, um, it could become a distraction from the business. So, but there's things you can do even in the brand purpose uh, space to ensure that your pursuit of trying to create a better world is coming from a place that is completely aligned with the products you create, um, the stories you've told, experiences you bring to the world. 
I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free, and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free Built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com built. Most people don't go to a global brand and start off as an intern and then end up becoming the chief marketing officer. What about you made that happen? It's a great question because believe me, when I arrived, I had no, I couldn't even dream that big, right? We all kind of travel with these, maybe these limitations. When we're really young, we, we were dreamers, right? And then maybe we experience failure and pressures and different things. And we stop dreaming big enough, even when it comes to our own career aspirations. And so I kind of came into Nike more as a designer and an artist. How I arrived at Nike of, as a maybe more of a craftsman and, and a specialist on that. But early on in my career, uh, I started to be around folks who, it wasn't just a design, it wasn't just a, a thing, it was a story. And that this was a brand that was, were storytellers. And I started to kind of pull up from just being someone who sat at their desk and was immersed in their own mind trying to, to solve the, the puzzle, if you will, which oftentimes building logos and logotypes, it's, it's a puzzle and you're trying to unlock that. And so I started to think about all aspects of the world of, in this case, the visual world of Nike. That's kind of where it started first. How does Nike look in stores? How do they look on a kid's wall in a poster? The U.S. women's national team is going to the World's Cup. How do we tell that story? How do we art direct that? Uh, how do we inspire people, make them back to feel certain ways? And so once I got into that mindset of your responsibility is you're not just creating elements, right? Um, you're creating a holistic, connected world. And then within that, you're trying to articulate the Nike voice and, and tell stories of, of greatness. You're just telling stories that are funny or soulful. You're exercising the different characteristics. And so over time, I just, uh, I just you know, and, and early on, I was a reluctant leader, right? I think we all have that voice as like, it's, it's, you know, it's that kind of imposter syndrome, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. But what happened is uh, I go from being an intern, you know, 22 years old, and then 
uh, less than eight years later, suddenly I'm thrust into a position where I'm responsible for the very people I was interning for. Now you could imagine what that experience was like. <laughs> and then from there, um, you know, managing kind of the image of the brand, right? Uh, I started to take on more and more responsibility around retail marketing, advertising, the rise of social media marketing, re really trying to transition Nike maybe from those traditional medium mediums and platforms that we talked about into this kind of new arena, this new exciting arena. And we, we, it was so amazing because we got to test and learn and fail. Really, Nike was one of the first brands to really use YouTube and yeah. Facebook and Instagram. And we got the, we had permission to use our imaginations and partner with those, those, those brands to fail fast and succeed down the road and evolve into kind of a modern marketing. And so then ultimately, um, yeah, after just essentially spending a lot of time on the voice and the face and the, the feeling of Nike, yeah, I stepped into the, the chief marketing officer role on that. And again, oftentimes it's, I was never necessarily one that I was always ambitious. I was always competitive, but I wasn't overly uh, motivated by the next big thing, right? And part of that is just the passion for creating, for building, and, and, for, and that you could see it in the, in the world, taking shape back to that idea of creating these movements each year around a particular um, event like the Olympics or World Cup or a particular new innovation. And so, yeah, so it, and then it happened, right? And so here's this artist growing up in, you know, Minnesota, right? Suddenly uh, leading marketing for, and I'm biased, right? But I think the, great, the greatest... <laughs> marketing uh company in, in the world and um and yeah and so you have uh those are and you're standing on uh enormous shoulders yeah. right all that equity that had been built um over time but what i did bring to it was definitely a, more of maybe a, a visual orientation because i had spent so much time on world building on art directing experiences and expressions for the brand you know how we look and feel in the world on that and then of course um creating the space for teams um to you know really incentivizing risk right i think risk taking is something that you know brands can become risk adverse pretty quickly right yeah. especially in downtimes. but i think the great brands always create space where people don't have to ask for permission to use their imagination. They feel incentivized to not play it safe. And I think that's really, really important. Again, and you can do that constructively. Even if you're a small company, you might say, I used to do this, right? I'd say two times a year, we're going to create a forum and we're going to listen to four or five ideas that are, have not been briefed, they're not on anybody's business plan. And I'm going to make the space for you to be able to show up as a team and present those to the leadership team. 
And I can't tell you how many of those ideas that often started just with a conversation like this, where we said, well, what if, what if we did a collaboration between Greg Hoffman and Erica? And what would that look like, right? And so there were many different ideas that were able to incubate in that way um, that became very big, global, scalable ideas on that. Did that imposter syndrome that you felt ever go away? I don't think it ever goes away. I mean, I, I think there's two things that I have to check myself on. One is, is the pursuit of perfection, right? Well, it's not perfect yet, so I'm not going to share it. No, I think you should share. Th- so it's, it's, you know, we all have those voices, right, <laughs> on our shoulders, you know, telling us, like, well, that, that's, those words aren't perfect yet. Well, in today's fast-paced world, like, if you're not ready when the consumer needs you most, then they'll just go on to the next brand that can serve them. So there's a particular velocity that creativity needs to happen at uh, in today's brand world, right? Yeah, so there's that. And then imposter syndrome is just realizing that um, you have every right to be in that room, to be talking to that particular it could be a CEO or a board of a particular company. And I think anyone who says they, they don't have any fear as they move forward and in, in, in certainly in, in their professional lives um, is someone that's not learning anymore, right? I just really believe in be, this idea of not feeling like you have all the answers, be a lifelong learner, Embrace collaboration because I think the solutions you can create together versus on your own are, quite frankly, much richer and more long-lasting. Um, don't be afraid to ask for help on that. You know, ha- asking for help isn't it isn't a weakness, but we all fall prey to this idea where we got it. Like we self-author everything. We got to. I'm just gonna. Like, I got this, and it's like. Yeah, but you know what? You could probably get it more if you actively engaged others in your pursuit and be confident about it. If you were telling your younger self that advice, don't be afraid to ask for help, what do you wish over the last years of your career you would have asked more for help with? Well, it's a great question, right? I, I, you know, one thing I did do a lot, I I love writing, I love words um, and, or the power of words, right? And oftentimes I would create uh, I'd create a brand manifesto that I would then share with the team. And it's like, no, I should have created that with the team. And we, we pull together to rise <laughs> higher, right? Sometimes my own passion got in the way uh, or this idea that I always had to prove myself. I think that's the other thing that a lot of us go through, right? You know, maybe that starts when we're younger. We, you know, we feel that maybe we're not necessarily part of the club, growing up. And because of that, we have this constant pursuit to maybe overachieve and prove people wrong. Yeah, if I could go back and tell my you know, previous self through each decade, of course, it would be to be more transparent with my feelings, it would be more about embracing your teammates, right? Which means, you know, you gotta, you gotta open yourself up a bit. Versus being the person that has all the answers. And, and I think today, what's really nice is the way leadership is evolving. Um, and this idea of empathetic leadership, which is a strength, right? 
maybe you couldn't say that a decade ago. But um, this idea of realizing that how you operate in the world and your lived-in experience is just not the same as everyone else. And so have a deeper appreciation of how people are living mm. around you. And um, demonstrate that, that you care about that will make you a better leader. And I think we get caught up sometimes um, with how fast we're moving, where we're not showing our appreciation enough of, of the team. And I grew up maybe in a time where, and there was this great quote I remember from, uh, there's a show, Mad Men, and Matthew Weiner came and spoke to us. And it was just, and he was talking about, you know, the budgets on that show weren't big, but it was a really popular show. But he said, you know, we were run ragged, but creatively satisfied, right? And I knew that, you know, growing up in the industry that you would work as hard as you could, but you were creatively fulfilled. I think today we have to make sure that we're professionally, creatively, strategically fulfilled in our jobs, but that our mental and physical health is always respected in that pursuit, right? And that's the balance. How can we achieve that? How can we create these really high standards together, not one person's standboards, but we're all doing that together, and that we're, we're, we're healthy doing that, right? Yeah. And I love that about, um, you know, where we are today. And, and there is a balance, right? So you left Nike in 2020. Can you point to a specific moment where you decided this is the time for me? You know, it's interesting. I was actually traveling through Europe with, with my family, you know, my kids, my wife. Um, and, and that last year I, would, I had started to think about you know, I'd like to teach, I'd like to actually create a, a syllabus, right? And at the university level, what would that look like? Um, I had spent years, I had this big scrapbook of all of the manifestos and, and principles of creative leadership that thankfully Nike allowed me to do roadshows with, right? Oftentimes it didn't have anything to do with like the business specifically that we were driving, but just this pursuit of creating more creative teams on that. And then it's interesting. I read this book uh, by uh, David Brooks called The Second Mountain, where he talked about, you know, the first mountain is that professional pursuit and maybe the accolades that come with that. And it's, it's very internally focused. And then maybe the second mountain is when you start climbing. It's like, where do you take all that, you know, those lessons, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and translating that in a way where you're really supercharging the growth of, of others beyond a business. And so that's when I kind of found the moment where it's like, it's time for me to dive into these things that have been rattling around uh, in my head. And I had, I, and you know, I have to say as well, I had a great coach that Nike gave me that, that last year as well, an executive coach where we would have all these amazing philosophical discussions about how you can use your voice and your platform to drive change at scale, right? So then ultimately making that bold move, um, of course, you've just spent your adult life at <laughs> a yeah. brand, right? It's not something you do lightly, but I think, you know, I had you know, a year 
to kind of really think through that and the support of, of, of my family and, and everyone else. And so coming out of that to, again, publish this book that isn't just a, a book on brand expertise and brand building principles and how to, you know, really unleash your creativity as an individual or team, but but it, there's also a, a, a thread of my personal journey around race and diversity, right? Being someone who grew up mixed race, half black, half white, growing up within my loving white family and a white school system, um, experiencing a lot of adversity within that, but really using all that to fuel some of the work we did within the Nike brand. And so I wanted to also share that with the world. And guess what? So as that launched and came into the world, a lot of people maybe that didn't see themselves within these industries maybe saw themselves in my story. And it's mm-hmm. just been really rewarding, again, for me to experience that. You know, it's like show versus tell, because that's one thing a publisher will always tell, tell you, right? You need to bring people into the scene like it's a movie. Don't just tell us what happened. Show us what happened. Yeah, I, I'm just, I, I guess I'm just loving where, where things are, are progressing right now. If you were to look at the next five years, what would be the sign that I've made it, I've done what I've wanted to accomplish, and it was a great decision to leave Nike? I not only love what I'm doing at the University of Oregon's Graduate School of Business, you know, I'm the branding instructor there, right? And that's great. But if I look back at five years, one of the other things I'd like to do is really truly create a curriculum based on emotion by design, but that is available to anybody around the world, right? Um, I think that's the world we live in. What's great is you can create inclusive education virtually because everyone can have access to it, right? Um, Regardless of time zones, you don't have to be in person anymore. And so providing branding, education, brand building expertise through this this digital world we live in um, would be something I'm, I'm thinking a lot about, right? And not only do, do I hope others learn from me, I learn a lot in, in that process um, because I'm not, by no means am I a finished product, right? I really do believe this an idea of curiosity is like, to me, one of the most important traits as a human being, as a, a leader, and this constant pursuit of, of looking at the outside world for inspiration, looking at the other uh, experiences of others, and letting that fuel kind of your, your path. Because I always say complacency is the enemy of creativity, mm-hmm. right? And, and so let's not get too comfortable. Let's keep growing. Um, and, and I want to continue to push that message out there and just help people be more curious, be more empathetic, um, and um, take more risks. We have a little closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Greg Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away from this podcast being able to say, Greg taught me this? Greg taught me to create more emotional value around my products and my brand to in turn create a more powerful emotional bond with the audiences that I seek to serve. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you.
If you enjoyed today's episode, Greg Hoffman has a book called Emotion by Design, Creative Leadership Lessons from a Life at Nike. And I'll put the link in the show notes. And please leave us a review wherever you're listening right now. It would mean a lot to me and I appreciate it so much. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with me today. And I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.